Welcome to the Insights Podcast on the Huddle Network with uh, Don Mills and David Campbell. I'm David Campbell. And I'm Don Mills. Well, Don, we had an excellent conversation today with Louis-Philippe Gauthier, the Senior Director of Legislative Affairs for Atlantic for the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. And I think it's uh, on the minds of a lot of Atlantic Canadians is how the small business sector is doing. And I think we got some good insights today from Louis-Philippe. Uh, we did. And just for definition, uh, CFIB actually represents small and medium-sized uh, businesses in Canada. And for further definition, a small business is considered a business with less than 100 employees. Medium-sized businesses are between 100 and 500 uh, workers. And uh, this segment uh, represents the vast majority of, of private sector businesses in Canada. And in, in the case of Atlantic Canada, SMEs account for more than 90% of all private sector employment. So they're representing a big part of the economy. And uh, one of the things that I like about CFIB, I was a member while I, uh, I own my business, is they do a lot of research with members. They're, they're continuing uh, um, to uh, get the opinion of their members. And they, they really represent <clears throat> the opinions of their members in the, in the advocacy uh, side of their work. Yeah, I agree. I one of the things that surprised me a bit, well, it didn't surprise me, is that, but it concerns me a bit, is that they're continuing to ask for significant government relief for the small business sector. And I guess I would ask you is how long can the government continue to provide direct support to small business and run up ever increasing deficits? Now, the flip side of that is, do we really want to let large segments of our small business sector go down or go under because of something like a pandemic. So what, what are your thoughts on continued subsidization uh, of the small business sector? Well, it's kind of a suck and blow at the same time uh, <laughs> approach. You know, they don't want uh, government to continue programs that uh, prevent people from uh, re-entering the workplace uh, like CERB and, uh, and, and enhance the EI. Um, uh, on the one hand, on the other hand, they want to continue to send financial supports to businesses. Now, I think there there could be a case made for certain segments that have been particularly hard hit and haven't really been uh, the beneficiaries of, of the, all the all the support. And I would put uh, the hospitality industry in there uh, for an example. Uh, but um, you know, I think it's time to end the individual. Um, uh, programs that have uh, kept people out of the workforce, uh, and um, it's time to get back to a more normal uh, situation in terms of the availability of people uh, uh, for um, for the workplace. Yeah, the only other thing that I thought was interesting, very interesting about that conversation was the tepid support for a vaccine mandate. I mean, on the one hand, I understand they're worried about liability, they're worried about the cost of trying to manage the, the whole process of a vaccine um, passport or mandate. But I think, as you indicated in the conversation, it, it would certainly make things easier if it, if it did speed up the actual uh, uh, vaccination rate among the public. So I, I, thought, I thought the support for that would be higher among small business. Yeah, I, I don't think that uh, small and medium-sized businesses um, uh, have fully thought this through. Um, there are... Um, legal uh, issues that need to be resolved. <clears throat> As I mentioned in our conversation, the business that I have, have uh, purchased with my son and my brother, we decided to make uh, vaccines mandatory on the advice, uh, legal advice that we received. And uh, we have an obligation as an employer to provide a safe working environment. <clears throat> and uh, I think that alone is enough uh, um, sort of rationale to to impose uh, mandatory vac vaccinations. And by the way, <clears throat> a lot of businesses will be uh, surprised if they're shut down again because not enough people have gotten the vaccinations. You know, we're trying to get the herd uh, immunity, which has been targeted at 75% of the entire population. We're getting close in Atlantic Canada. It may not be enough. We may have to get to 85% once young kids can be vaccinated to return to a, a former normal. If we have a new wave based on the Delta and, and there's a lot of unvaccinated people, we're still going to have issues about trying to keep businesses open. So it's in the interest of businesses to help 
uh, encourage people to get the vaccinations. And one of the ways that you can do that is make it mandatory to be able to do non-essential things like going to restaurants, going to movies, going to sporting events. Um, and, and certainly they're going to do it for international travel in any case. Um, and, you know, the reality is, is that we need to put some pressure on those people who are hesitant to get vaccinated if we're going to get to herd immunity. The other thing was this issue that you raised with him about this wave of business retirements that are going to hit the region over the next decade. I thought that was a shocking, fairly shocking uh, part of the conversation because I don't think a lot of these businesses are ready. Uh, are you concerned that we're going to see this this sort of gap emerge when, when all these businesses start to retire? For sure. I mean, um, you know, there's a lot of businesses in Atlantic Canada more than 30,000 based on my calculation that will be transferring ownership of their business within the next 10 years. And I pointed out in a column not that long ago that there are more sellers than buyers right now. Uh, there's just uh, so many businesses for baby boomers like me. There's just not enough people in the marketplace to buy up all the businesses. That's the first reality. The second reality is really uh, something that I want business owners to think about. You need to know the value of your business. Um, almost everybody that I that I know in business, small business especially, overvalue the business. They forget that they're the main asset in the business. And when they go, a lot of the value leaves with them. So they have to get professional advice to uh, understand what they could get in the marketplace. They need to plan it not the year that they're going to transfer, but a couple years out. And by the way, one of the big options is uh, selling it to uh, your own employee group, which is what I did. And, and the reason that I was so interested in doing it, David, is I wanted the ownership to remain uh, Atlantic Canadian. I certainly had opportunity to sell to national companies. I never, I never favored that. I, I wanted to keep the ownership in the hands of Atlantic Canadians. So you need to have a philosophy about how you're going to transfer your business. Do you want to sell out the highest bidder, international, national, big regional player, or you want to sell out to your uh, employee group who's, who have helped build your business to the success level that it is. So it's a really important point for businesses. And I urge anybody in the small and medium uh, uh, sort of enterprise uh, sector right now to begin planning for it because you can't wait to the last minute. It, you, if you wait to the last minute, you're going to really have, it's going to be more challenging than, than it needs to be. That's great advice. So now without any further ado, here is our conversation with Louis-Philippe Gauthier of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Louis-Philippe Gauthier, we're glad to have you here today to discuss small business in Atlantic Canada and particularly what the CFIB is looking for from the federal government in this fairly turbulent time. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, why don't we start with finding out a little bit about CFIB. There may be some people who don't know the work that you do. Maybe you can talk about what it is that you do, um, maybe um, who you represent, and uh, a little bit about the numbers of people that are members of CFIB, both nationally and in the region. Well, CFIB is 50 years old this year. We've just celebrated our 50th anniversary. Uh, we are an advocacy group for uh, small, biz small and medium-sized businesses in Canada. We have 95,000 members across the country. Our members are what we describe as independent small business owners, essentially uh, business owner uh, businesses where 100% uh, of the ownership is Canadian. Uh, we can't have businesses that have foreign ownership and or, for example, of course, listed on the stock market. Our approach is relatively uh, simple and straightforward. Uh, it's one member, one vote. We are very nonpartisan. And uh, with one member, one vote, of course, we conduct a huge amount of research to make sure that uh, we bring the voices of our members forwards at the federal, provincial, and municipal level on various issues that affect the lives of business uh, owners and their businesses uh, across the country. In Atlantic Canada, uh, we have uh, um, 3,700 members in Nova Scotia, 3,500 uh, in New Brunswick, 800 in PEI, and uh, 1,700 uh, in Newfoundland. So when you look at, at the pure uh, numbers perspective and the classification of our, our membership, we have exclusively uh, small and medium-sized uh, business. We have few that are large. 
across every single sector in Atlantic Canada. And we uh, essentially uh, don't have any of the nonprofits or the large uh, chains that are part of our membership. So when we bring forward data to policymakers, uh, they can, especially with the quality and the amount of research that we do, uh, we do bring forward a, a solid perspective on uh, what business owners want to see for the health of their businesses. Uh, yeah, as a past uh, business owner, our company was a member of uh, CFIB. I, I, and I think it's worth pointing out to our listeners um, the scope of this small and medium-sized uh, uh, enterprises are in Canada. It dominates the market in terms of the number of uh, Companies um, in Atlantic Canada, it represents 90% of all private sector employment. You know, so just to put it in perspective, there are very few larger uh, companies in our region. So uh, you're, you're really uh, representing a big part of the private sector economy. Um, I'd like to really uh, take a look at uh, small business recovery um, uh, from a from a small business and medium-sized business perspective. You recently did a, a, a poll um, of the public through Angus Reform. Can you tell us a little bit about what you found out in that most recent poll about uh, business recovery in our country? Well, from, uh, from that poll, the information that we were looking at was from the general public, of course, in that instance, as to uh, what was important for them in the context of their recovery. And uh, to be able to mesh that with our data, as you can appreciate in the context of the, of the federal election. From our perspective, what was really interesting is uh, that Canadians uh, do recognize uh, that the economy and, and small business recovery uh, are very important. In fact, they were ranked among the top five election issues uh, for Canadians uh, from that, uh, from that poll. So it's, you know, throughout the pandemic, business owners have received a lot of support uh, from the general public and a lot of recognition to the difficulties that they've gone through over the last uh, 16 months. And uh, from our perspective, that was very positive. Uh, and it, it does driving the reality that the political uh, parties in the federal election have to consider, uh, you know, living with COVID and the, the lasting impacts for many businesses uh, that the pandemic have had on their businesses. I was a bit surprised about that survey, Louis-Philippe. 93% of Canadians said that small business recovery is crucial for Canada's economy. I mean, I think that makes sense to me. I just didn't realize it was so pervasive. What, why, why does the general public have such a love for small business? Do you have any thoughts? I th I th Honestly, with the amount of time that everybody's spent glued to their TVs, looking at COVID updates and, and reading the impacts, uh, you know, small business, small and medium-sized businesses have been in the forefront of the news cycle, of course, along with the, the, the health impacts of COVID. Uh, so it, for, for us, it's a confirmation of what we, we believed and seen. Uh, and having uh, that element just drives in the fact that uh, the Canadians overall are conscious of the importance of their small businesses within their communities and that uh, they have uh, been impacted. You know, everybody, if they look back in their purchasing uh, or their consumption habits over the last uh, 16 months, uh, you know, would recognize that they've changed up to certain points their consumption habits. And unfortunately, in a lot of instances, to the detriment of small businesses. So maybe there's a little bit of, of sympathy there. So Louis Philippe, why can't you? Why don't you summarize for us what the big issues are for small business in this uh, federal election? Well, as I'd mentioned, we take our, our direction from our our membership. So clearly, our members want a detailed economic uh, recovery plan that includes COVID nineteen relief programs uh, that either in the current form and or in another form. Uh, plans to reduce the overall tax burden on small businesses because from that perspective, that's still a worry. A commitment to, to control government spending, at least a timeline for balancing the budget. And uh, a plan that, it, as you're aware, uh, the EI uh, program is under review right now. And there are some issues uh, 
that our, our members are, are seeing relating to access to labor and returning some of the labor force uh, to work. So making sure that uh, future changes to employment insurance uh, are made like having the consideration of small business, of course. And then finally, uh, addressing the labor and the skills shortage. Uh, so from what that would be the top five at this point. The, the other reality I would add is that w- whoever forms the next government will have to deal with the reality of the current state that businesses are in. Uh, and that includes the amount of debt that they've incurred over the the pandemic at this point. So that that's that's one of the things that at this point, no, I don't think I've seen any of the the parties uh, address. Uh, maybe just a quick follow up on that. Uh, uh, you know, there's been a lot of discussion, complaints, I guess, about uh, especially from small business about the ability to. Uh, attract, uh, uh, you know, labor to their businesses. There's uh, there's an, some indication that the support from government has gone on too long and there's acts as a disincentive to work. What are your members saying about that? Well, our members uh, definitely see the modifications to the EI system as, as the hampers to returning to, to work. That They believe that the program should not be overly generous to uh, the workers at this point so that it doesn't desensitize the workers to come back uh, when the opportunities are there. The the main concern now that the restrictions are on the whole basically gone uh, from a health perspective is uh, having enough uh, employees being able to find the labor that they need. And the data from Atlantic compared to national is is comparable. It's around 32% uh, that of our members are saying we're having an issue with labor. Now, it's not all over uh, in all the sectors. Of course, all the uh, sectors uh, that people would recognize have been most uh, most impacted. Uh, you know, restoration uh, thing, businesses that are within the tourism sector, uh, you know, restaurants. Sixty-seven percent of our members are saying that this is uh, a, a major impact for them. Arts uh, and recreation, uh, management and administrative services, and then construction and transportation. Uh, those are all above the, the normal means from our, our, our data. And even when we look at the barometer, uh, which, is, which is a research product we do monthly, uh, the lack of or difficulties in finding uh, qualified uh, or unqualified or semi-qualified uh, labor are number one and number two and have been for a few months at this point. So that's that continues, uh, but in relation to the EI uh, program or the modified programs, uh, it, it is a concern uh, that uh, the programs are potentially overly generous at this point and are hampering people returning uh, to work. Now, having said that, uh, there are multiple facets to the labor shortage. No, it's it's a problem that was there before the pandemic. Uh, it's just amplified at this point. Uh, have there been changes in uh, in how the workers uh, perceive what they want to do going forward? Uh, are there other factors uh, at play? Of course, it's not just one. Can't, I don't think we can point to, to EI and saying that's the end-all, be-all, but it is, uh, just based on our data, something that our members believe uh, is uh, that should be addressed, that the program is overly generous at this point. Uh, just to follow up on that question, uh, the, pan- the pandemic has been harder on some industries than others, obviously, and, and based on the current situation, what segments of the economy, as represented by your members, are facing the most challenges right now? Well, overall, from the again, we go back to basically the same sectors we were talking uh, prior uh, that I just mentioned a few minutes. So we're talking about what we're talking about: uh, hospitality, restaurants, uh, services, arts and entertainment, and management and administrative services from a, a revenue perspective. If we look overall in Atlantic Canada, 
and we look, you know, we've been asking this data initially the pandemic. We were surveying our members every week for the first few months, and then we went to a biweekly cycle, and now we're on a monthly cycle. Uh, but uh, it's it's quite clear that uh, we have a substantial amount of our, our members that are still below pre-pandemic revenue levels. I'd say on the whole across Atlantic Canada, easily 60% of our members are below pre-pandemic revenue levels. And from a staffing perspective, it's also the same thing. If you look at the meta numbers, the high level you know, unemployment numbers, it doesn't really show the f- full extent you really have to dig into the data and it's really in certain sectors specifically that you see the impact. So with revenue still not being there uh, for a lot of businesses, uh, not having returned uh, to pre-pandemic level of staffing, including the amount of debt that's been incurred uh, that businesses are carrying on their book that is quite substantial uh, and that will take time to repay. Uh, Our latest research shows that in the last 16 months, there's basically been no dent made by business owners in reducing the amount of debt uh, that they have gathered uh, on their books. Right now, across the country, would sit at around $139 billion that's been accumulating on the books of, of small and medium-sized businesses. So it's, it's quite a, um, a legacy at this point of 16 months. So, Louis-Philippe, one of the things in almost every article you read on this issue about the labor shortage, um, you know, quote, they quote people saying small businesses just have to raise wages. And I, I thought I'd ask you to weigh in on that because my concern is that it's, it's, it's never that simple, right? That you, you know, a lot of these businesses are running very tight margins and you just can't arbitrarily weighs, raise your wages because it's very hard to pass that on to the end customer. So what's the view of yourself and CFIB on that issue of just pay more if you want to attract uh, workers? Well, to your point, David, it's it's not a, a straight line a, a solution there. Uh, no, even you know, the recent data from StatScan that you highlighted a few weeks ago showing you know, the wages on offer in Q1 uh, of this year in New Brunswick, uh, we're all pacing by 6%, the national average. So, you know, wages are increasing. Uh, the, right now, the, the difficulty saying that it's just a question of wage, the people are simply not applying and not there apparently anymore in the, in, in the labor market. So the number of, of business owners that are advertising positions and the positions are nobody is applying or the amount of uh, applications is extremely subpar does illustrate a reality that you know, we, we have an issue with what's available within the market. From a wage perspective, businesses have, to your point, an ability to, to increase up to what is believed the market will be able to sustain from their product or service, you know, the end result of what their activity is. We're already seeing uh, the impacts from the supply chain on increasing costs on businesses and how that's going to translate in a lot of circumstances to the cost of the product or the service that's being offered to the, to the public. Uh, the market will, at the end of the day, take care of itself. Now, there is only up to a certain point where businesses can re- raise wages and you do have to look at what's the reality within your market. So from, from, from our perspective, you know, businesses are already doing it. Uh, even when we look at our business barometer data, as soon as market conditions, and this has been shown over the years of us uh, serving our members, as soon as labor market conditions uh, become tighter, wages go up. Uh, so businesses owner are adapting at this point to their reality as much as, as they can. And unfortunately, in certain specific sectors, it does bring in the question of, uh, you know, we need to bring outside help in. Uh, we do need to have an ability to efficiently bring in labor uh, from outside of the country. Uh, and that, as you can appreciate, could be a whole episode of a conversation. But the immigration aspect, while it's important, you know, it is not going to be a short-term solution to our 
our medium to long-term woes. Um, so CFIB conducted a poll of your members before the Nova Scotia election, um, we feel that included some, I guess, some surprising findings. The most important issue for your members uh, was health care. Um, why would business owners put health care at the top of their list of priorities? Well, I'd say the most surprising aspect of that survey was seeing uh, the uh, that uh, redu- balancing the budget and re- reducing the debt was uh, way at the bottom of the, the top 10 items of importance. You know, typically balancing the budget and reducing the debt of a province is something that is top of mind. Uh, so they, there was quite an inversion there, uh, but that's clearly what our members uh, thought was important. If you look at how the question was structured, the question is, how uh, will the following elements or items uh, potentially uh, influence your vote? Uh, so that's that was the, the how the question was formulated. So for business you know, business owners, I, I think, Don, you made the point uh, in the last podcast that business owners sometimes also vote as people uh, when uh, because they are people. It's not always just their business interests. But of course, in the context of COVID and in the context of Nova Scotia, our members were quite clear uh, health was number one uh, in their uh, voting intentions. And number two uh, was red tape. Uh, and so from that perspective, making it as easy as possible for businesses to operate and, uh, and dealing with you know, government itself and government regulations afterwards. Yeah. So uh, another really uh, important item that was ranked high was investing in public infrastructure. Uh, maybe you could just maybe define what public infrastructure uh, would mean to small businesses and why it would be ranked um, maybe more important than other things like addressing labor shortages or investing in education and skills training. Well, as you could appreciate, we in Nova Scotia and across in every single province, we have members uh, everywhere uh, in every covering every provinces. So, uh, you know. From a regional perspective and even from an urban perspective, uh, investments in schools, in roads, in public infrastructure uh, is something uh, that when our members perceive uh, a lack, uh, of course, it'll raise up uh, within uh, their priorities, if you will. Uh, So within the context of the Nova Scotia election, they indicated that, to your point, that it was something that is very important to them. Uh, so it could range any gambit of public-related uh, infrastructure investments, so from roads to schools to hospitals. Right. Now, uh, I guess uh, you could say that the election in Nova Scotia was a, also a surprise outcome. Um, in your opinion, does the new uh, government in Nova Scotia have a, a plan, a good plan to support small businesses ov- uh, overall? We'll have to, one of the big questions that's left, and that's something that I'm going to have to have a conversation with the government with, relates to their uh, their program that they put forward in, in allowing businesses to recapture 50% of the provincial uh, profit tax and to apply it to labor. That's There's a mechanic there that is that needs a deeper conversation at least from a policy perspective. So I'm looking forward to those conversations and really understanding uh, what they are uh, going to be doing and how that's going to be applied and done. Uh, of course, the, the, the question relating to customer service, red tape, regulatory affairs, making sure it's as easy as possible to do business in Nova Scotia is going to be a, a very important uh, conversation as you're aware the Nova Scotia has been leading Atlantic Canada when it comes to those policies and being able to have an effective an application within government and making sure to reduce red tape uh, through the specific office that they have uh, within government. Uh, and you know, the focus uh, of the last of, of the election was uh, evidently uh, one that the new government has as won. With their focus on healthcare, so that piece is not necessarily something that CFIB will will have conversations on. But uh, you know, from that perspective, the the desires from one of our members uh, wanted to see as a focus is is going to track from that perspective based on 
you know, the promises that have been made. Louis-Philippe, just a follow-up uh, question on that. Are you seeing, you've been around quite a while now, you've worked for CFIB for several, a number of years. Are you seeing more regulatory and har harmonization across Atlantic Canada? Is there more of an effort for the provinces to be more consistent in how they approach regulation and uh, particularly related to small business? If we go back to 2015-2016, at that time, the four Atlantic provinces essentially enacted uh, similar acts, uh, mirror acts on their books uh, relating to regulatory, regulatory affairs, so the Regulatory and Accountability Acts, that bind each province to a set of principles uh, called the Premier's Charter, if you will, uh, where... It, it, it imposes on the regulators uh, a series of measures, if you will, that will, that in theory should help minimize the impact on businesses and citizens of uh, regulatory decisions or, or, or of new laws. It's been implemented and acted upon in various degrees. Uh, in Nova Scotia, uh, I would say, would be the, the gold standard in Atlantic Canada at this point. They set up an office, staffed it, uh, and effectively worked at uh, consistently uh, over the last, uh, since that moment, from the last five to six years, to achieve set specific goals of, of reducing the costs and the burdens on, on businesses of regulatory uh, affairs. If we look after that, uh, the work that's been done uh, in New Brunswick, uh, unfortunately, you know, the government that enacted uh, the, the act itself at the time, uh, the Galan government, really, there wasn't that much uh, that was achieved. More has been achieved uh, during the current sitting government. There's a lot of work to be done there. Uh, PEI, there's a lot of, for the size of its government, there's a lot of good work that's been achieved as well. Newfoundland is, is clearly lagging from that perspective. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done uh, by government on regulatory accountability uh, and, and making sure that the decisions they make or the existing uh, regulations that are in the books are, are, aren't impacting businesses uh, or being a detriment to their growth and operation. So overall, it's it's a picture that's quite different from one province to the other. It's something, as you know, that CFIB has been working on and chipping at for many, many years. You know, we've been issuing a red tape report card uh, for over 10 years at this point where we evaluate governments uh, on their performance and their commitments. We've incl started including elements of the Canadian free trade agreements uh, as part of our evaluation uh, in the red tape report card over the last three years. And that's another element that, that uh, we're very focused on and making sure that the governments make headway. Uh, it, it's something that's not unfortunately sexy, uh, it's politically, if you will, but it is something that is very important. As you can appreciate, a lot of business owners, especially small business owners, end up doing everything in their business from HR all the way to, to, to dealing with government. They don't have enough staff or the size to be able to do that. So whenever that you're spending it's a lot of time in dealing with government on a regulatory issue or trying to get answers or you if you unfortunately have to live through the frustration of knocking on two three five doors before you're able to talk to the right person that's time wasting generally speaking it increases the the blood pressure quite a bit uh, so that's something that we've been working on for for a long time and it's at varying degrees in different places across atlantic canada there's been some some marks of success so I wanted to ask you uh, a little bit uh, about high-level uh, economic questions. Uh, Don and I started the Insights podcast specifically to help sort of chart a path forward in terms of economic prosperity in Atlantic Canada. So I'd like to ask you a couple of questions here related to your general thoughts on things. And the first one is around self-employment. So on the one hand, we have the number in three of the four Atlantic provinces, the number of people identifying on the labor force survey as self-employed has actually been going down except for Prince Edward Island, which is very interesting. Um, that province is interesting for a variety of reasons as we've talked about on this podcast, but 
So you have the gig economy rising. You have all these sort of micro businesses starting, it seems, right? People making uh, products and services in, in, in very small ways in, in local markets. And yet, overall, the number of self-employed persons, at least from a labor force perspective, seems to be going down. Do you have any thoughts on that trend or concerns? Are you seeing a, a general uh, lessening of interest among young people around self-employment? Or are there other things going on there that you'd like to share with us? Well, if we go back, if I go back in my memory and I think about you know, the analysis when the self-employment, the gig economy, as you define it, started rising. The one of the research pieces that we we looked at was all right. Well, what's what's driving it? So, because if you remember, there was a lot of conversation saying, well, people are are forced to do this because of of the precarities of of the labor market. Uh, our research showed that it wasn't that that it was driving it uh, at all, that it was actually a choice that the employees and people would decide, well, okay, I'm going to become self-employed and basically start my own micro business. Uh, so, no, I, I don't have any data to, to offer to you, but what I would tend to say is if it was driven, if the growth was driven by a choice, then uh are less people making that choice and just opting to, to go back into salaried positions within businesses. Now, if we go to the other aspect of your question, which would be uh, what's the impact on entrepreneurship? Uh, because from our perspective, we do consider these individuals that are self-employed and running their micro businesses as businesses. Uh, is, is there a question mark to be had there? Potentially, but I, I don't see any elements within our data right now that be, would be uh, of high concern, if you will. If it pops up, of course, it will become one. But One of the things that we've uh, noted in this podcast, as David's mentioned, is uh, the difference uh, uh, of uh, how the economy is working in PEI. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, we speculated that one of, the, one of the reasons that entrepreneurism is generally lagging in this region, with the exception of PEI, is that we really haven't had our share of immigrants for a really long time. And of course, immigrants bring entrepreneurial drive with them and, and they tend to start businesses like they have in PEI. Uh, do you think that the part of the solution to attract is to attract more entrepreneurs to our region from other parts of the world? The numbers would, would clearly indicate that that has to happen from a, a macro perspective. No, we no, hopefully over time uh, the the federal government uh, and of course each provincial government has their own targets and etc comes down to how ambitious they should be uh, but you know, the de demographic reality across Atlantic Canada with you know the star caveat of PEI being kind of a little bit of an outlier there because of its size and and of course their ability to 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 have an impact on the numbers there is, is different than in New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, and Newfoundland with different reality. But you know, immigration for, is going to have to, is and must be part of the solution. There, there's no question there, either from a, a labor perspective and, of course, from an, a, an entrepreneurial spirit uh, aspect as well. Uh, you know, we, we do have a lot of our membership that is uh, regularly we serve in them and look at where their expectations are from a retirement perspective, what will they do. Uh, and, and we need people to, to, to be entrepreneurs, to start up businesses, to, to, to create uh, a future for themselves and, and personal wealth and, and Make a uh, offer the services and products that our our, our communities need uh, across each one of our province. So, you know th that is an important element. You know what's what's the proportion of of immigrants that should be economic uh, or entrepreneurial immigrants compared to labor compared to other categories? That's that's something that uh, I, I think right now we just need more of everything, uh, just based on the numbers. You know? We've talked ad nauseum about the, the demographic wall that uh, many of all of our provinces 
again, PEI being kind of a asterisk outlier there uh, are, are facing, uh, but you know, that's that's a reality. Uh, and at least for us, from a policy perspective, one of the things that we've been recommending to the to the federal government uh, is to have a, a entry to Canada visa that leads directly to the citizenship. That uh, the visa be tied to a specific region uh, of the of a province, for example, and that after X amount of set years, that that uh, of being in place within the community, uh, that the opportunity is there for uh, for the individual to become a, a citizen in Canada. Uh, but it would give more flexibility, as you're fully aware, the LMIA process right now from an immigration perspective is quite onerous, difficult. It takes a lot of time, a lot of investments. A lot of our members that are using it are essentially outsourcing the whole process to consultants. So it costs a lot of money. And from a, the majority of our businesses, which are very, very small uh, in size, uh, is not, is just not something that's feasible at this point. I just want to uh, refer to a study that you did that I think was actually very important, and it was it was not uh, perhaps um, uh, as well understood as it should be. That you did a survey regarding the transfer of one point five trillion dollars worth of business assets so over to new owners over the next ten years. This was done in twenty eighteen. I actually did a a column on this topic um, about uh, a year or so after that. Uh, study came out. And it, it was really insightful because um, it indicated that uh, 47% of small and medium-sized owners plan to sell their business in the next five years. And of course, we're partway through that first five years. And more than 70% in the next 10 years. I estimated in Nova Scotia alone that 20,000 businesses would be on the market in the next decade. So that's a big number. But the more startling finding from that study to me was that uh, only 8% of business owners had a written plan to transfer to new ownership. And and more than half did not have any plan at all. Uh, I wonder what uh, CIB, CFIB is doing with its members to help them prepare for the transfer of their businesses, because it's clear that not not enough people are. are well, if, if you go back in time at that point where we released that data, uh, and even beforehand, there was a lot of effort from uh, the BDC and from different groups, including CFIB, in putting additional resources and raising the awareness of that there are tools, there you know, should be done, planning should be done to from a transition perspective. Uh, so you know, internally, when our members are, are considering this, we have a, a series of, of documentation and information that we can provide to them that uh, that is made available uh, but going back to that point in time in 2018 let's see 20 even 2014 going backwards if i even before my pre-pand my pre-cfib days there were a lot of awareness and a lot of services being offered and they're still on the whole there uh, and you're correct that, that, that from an immigration perspective you know i hopefully there if there's nobody to buy those businesses uh, within the local market, that there will be uh, somebody from outside that will have the means and the abilities and the skills to be able to, to take over those businesses and, and keep them running and make a life for themselves and keep those service and products within the communities. Uh, e even today, one of you know, a few surveys back, you could see in our data that the effect of a pandemic might have accelerated that. So that, that will have uh, to be further studied from our end. Uh, but it, it's a reality that, that has been, was there well before the pandemic and, and it's still there. Sometimes there, there are issues that CFIB focuses on and people tend to go like, okay, well, this is very niche, but I'll give you an example. Uh, bills uh, C-208 that uh, received royal assent just before the elections were called. Uh, it was something that we've been pushing on for years and years. And the bill essentially tried and tries to and will address uh, the fiscal uh, treatment of businesses when business owners want to transfer the business to their uh, siblings. Uh, not siblings, but their, their children. Uh, for some 
well, you know, for years at this point, it, it you were losing money if well, put it trying to put it simply as possible. You were losing money if you were trying to sell your business to one of your kids. Uh, you may, you you were able to from a t tax treatment perspective, you were penalized to sell uh, your business uh, to your children. So if somebody that that built a business in the focus of trying to transfer it or wanted to do that, uh, it had a dampening effect. You, you, you lost a lot of your retirement uh, funding, if you will. So at least that piece now is is addressed uh, in a good part due to CFIB advocacy over the the last decade uh, and it's been you know, multiple attempts so it is an issue uh, it is something from that that should be focused on by everyone every from an opportunities perspective because these are businesses that exist and compared to to starting a new business if an existing business is an opportunity it's an ongoing opportunity uh, having the business owner just decide to wind it down uh, is 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 not desirable to say the least. You know, it warrants uh, it warrants attention, uh, especially since an opportunity. Is there something that could be done uh, better from a matching perspective of of offer uh, between? You know, there's this business. The owner is thinking of shutting it down or, or selling it to, to potential buyers. Uh, you know, every single I think item that we could find as potentially problematic in that context would, would warrant attention. So it's, it's, uh, it's something that, that, uh, you know, over the long run as, and potentially with the effects of the pandemic that we, that needs to have additional concerns right now. Uh, just a note, a quick editorial comment before David jumps in, you know, one of the things that I've noted, um, is that a lot of business owners have an overinflated uh, sense of value of their business. And I would recommend anybody listening to this who's thinking about transitioning their business, that they get an independent assessment of how much their business is really worth and put it in perspective, because that is often a barrier to getting a good deal done when you, when you think your business is worth a lot more than it actually is. So Louis-Philippe, I wanted to ask you a related question. It's a trend that I've been tracking now for probably close to a decade, particularly in Atlantic Canada, but I think it's an issue across the country. And that is a lot of consolidation is happening in a number of industries that were traditionally dominated by small local businesses. So if you think about the dentistry sector, funeral homes, optometry, accounting services, insurance brokerages, there was a time when insurance brokerages were almost entirely locally owned. And now the vast majority of them, from what I can tell, are owned by, you know, a few international firms. So I guess that is part of the response to what you were talking about in the previous question, in that small businesses are about to retire, the owners are about to retire, and along comes a big national or international firm and, and is prepared to pay them money and for, for their business. Uh, I'll just tell you a quick story. I asked my dentist how business was going because of COVID. He said, I don't know, ask my boss. And it turns out he had sold the, the office several years earlier to a, a, a regional or a national uh, owner. So I guess uh, I wanted to ask you if you find that to be concerning as somebody who is an advocate for small, local, independent businesses, or if you see it as just a natural sort of cycle and that you, you know, it's not anything for us to be worried about because my fear down the road, particularly after this pandemic is instead of having, you know, 10 or 12 interesting pizza restaurants in a, in a city or a town, you might have one or two national chains and then you lose the kind of, and I use pizza as a, as a, as a proxy for every other industry. But if you lose that local, competition that local you know local firms nipping at the heels of the national or the international firms so i guess the question is are you worried about that is that something you're tracking or is it just so something i'm just i shouldn't really be worried about it's a natural part of the business cycle well far far be it for me david to to even think of telling you what you should be worried about 
So we'll start with that. <laughs> so, you know, your insights uh, on, on many subjects are always appreciated and, and, and listened to. So I'd start with that. Number two, don't have any solid data on that. Uh, an impression would be, to your point, is it an opportunity for a business owner to realize the value in their businesses at that point instead of further down the line? Evidently, yes. And at that point, the business owner is making a decision that uh, the net present value of the of the the gathered uh, value of the business is 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 where it's reached uh, either its potential and they want to have uh, uh, other elements that come afterwards. Now, entrepreneurs, the question to me relates more to to this entrepreneurial spirit. Now, are, are, are we going to see a drop in the desire of people to go on their own and try something new, something different, and, and build their own opportunity? I haven't seen anything in the data that would indicate that. Uh, doesn't mean it's not there, but personally, I haven't. Uh, you know, the recent story in Moncton of a group of business owners, uh, restaurateurs that put... Uh, together a business model called uh, a ghost kitchen where essentially there's no dining room nothing and it's just a huge kitchen with multiple br uh, brands if you will uh, and different menus uh, and that they can switch out the menus in and out depending on what's selling well through uh, skip the dishes and their delivery systems uh, is is a beautiful sign of an adaptation to the current times and and of business owners getting together and putting an investment in and giving it a go. So are, are we going to see in, uh, in Caracat or in uh, Quispam Sis less of a desire of people when they see an opportunity thinking, well, I can make a go uh, at this idea, their ability to be able to raise capital to do it and, and their drive uh, to get it done. I, I really don't have a, an answer, but I, I, to me, to me is I, I don't see a lack of, of new projects or, or ideas or things that people want to try. Even I think that's something that was amazing during the pandemic, seeing uh, actually businesses start up while so many in different segments were, were going through you know, extreme pain. Don, I, I ask you the question, if the same question, if you don't mind. I know you not that long ago sold a very successful business, but you sold it, I believe, to local entrepreneurs or, or even employees of your business. What are your thoughts? Are you concerned about that at all, or do you just think it's a natural part of the business cycle? Well, consolidation uh, as a trend has been ongoing for a really long, a long time. Uh, you know, people are trying to get the scale. Uh, especially for people who compete in uh, in sort of national and international markets, uh, you know, to me it's all about the next wave of entrepreneurs. Are we teaching our kids in school that uh, uh, being a business owner is a good option? No, we're not. Uh, you know, uh, the only the, the only thing I would say is that we need to really encourage uh, entrepreneurism in our school system. As a, as a viable alternative. And I have to say, uh, let me just say this. If you're a business owner, if you're successful, you can do very well. And, uh, and not only that, but you're a master of your own destiny, which uh, is something that I personally uh, appreciated a lot. Um, uh, I think we do, we do need new entrepreneurial blood to come into our region. We've, we've missed that. Every other part of the country's had a lot of people coming from other countries who've owned businesses, who are, you know, uh, risk tolerant, prepared to, uh, you know, take the risk to start their own businesses. So uh, we're seeing that in, in PEI already. Uh, it, it's bumped up the entrepreneurial side. I think we're going to see more of it. And there's always there's always going to be kind of a, a wave of, uh, of of high and lows in, in terms of uh, people starting their own businesses, but I think if the, if you look at the data, I might be wrong, but I think the number of people starting uh, businesses has really uh, helped pretty consistently over the years. So uh, I'm not I'm not as worried perhaps as you are on this issue, David. Thanks, Don. Louis Philippe, let's end our conversation today with a little more of a discussion on the COVID-19 pandemic, because I think it is something that 
I don't know that we're having a good conversation about a longer term view here. You and I have talked about this in the past, and I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think your view is that COVID-19 and its variants are going to be with us for a long time, that it's going to become almost endemic or endemic. Um, So I guess the question for you is, do you still believe that or is that your view? And if so, what do you think it means for the small business sector? How will they adapt? Are there specific industries that you're worried may never fully recover if you have this kind of nasty virus that sort of floats around in the in the longer term and it's more endemic? So what, what are your thoughts on the long-term impacts of, of COVID-19 on the small business community? Well, generally speaking, the provincial governments are telling us what, and the federal government and governments across the world. But here, I'll start with New Brunswick, for example. The, the messaging is clear. We have to learn to live with COVID. So that's the state of things. You know, It's not going away. Uh, it's here. We need to learn to live with it. At this point, there is an amount of damage on certain businesses that has been done through the health restrictions and the changes in, in consumption habit of consumers. That's one question and area uh, that we'll have to see with the research I, I referred to earlier. The most affected sectors intend take more than it'll take more than a year to, to repay their debts, uh, but most are saying it's going to take a year. But over the last six six months, they haven't made a dent in their debts. So w- that's a reality that the, the the effects of the pandemic to this point are going to be a drag for a lot of businesses over the coming uh, months and potentially years in certain instances. Businesses are going to have to cope with changes in policy from governments, uh, from provincial governments when it comes to, to protecting the overall health of the population. Right now, the conversation at this point in time that's capturing uh the headlines, if you will, and, and the heads of policymakers relates to, to proof of vaccines uh, within uh, businesses for employees and, and proof of vaccines for customers that shop in certain businesses. Uh, where, where will we be within X amount of months and years? I, I, I won't even venture a forecast, but I the, the reality is we will have fluctuation within certain sectors. How much? That's a, I don't think anybody can answer that at this point. You can give us a snapshot of what the intentions of the businesses are right now. Trying to forecast the future is, is, is a whole other thing. I think I've mentioned to you in the past, you know, my snowball is akin to a permanently shaking snow globe. So there's this kind of it's extremely difficult to forecast. For example, just uh, how many businesses could die uh, and just shut down or, or run for bankruptcy or is the new normal of the staffing level something that's going to be uh, permanent uh, because of the reality of uh, you know, the businesses having either found ways to run with less employees or the reality of the tightness in the labor market. Uh, the whole question of of work at home, work from home for certain types of businesses, the the there are effects now uh, that we see plainly. How much of that is going to be left over and and become part of the new normal is is a story that will continue to unfold. The wh- what does it mean for businesses right now? Uh, the consideration is in relations to the whole proof of vaccine components. To give you, your listeners an insight there, when we asked our members last month, right, well, where would you support vac- proof of vaccinations uh, if government uh, implied it within policy? Now, of course, for international travel, high level of support. For large events, you know, concert festivals, and etc., 65% support. But as soon as we ask a question relating to employees or within the workplace or customers, then the support goes down. There is a reality that business owners are, are worried about the potential impacts on sales that a proof of vaccine mandate in a specific province could have. As you're aware, 
Uh, Quebec uh, is in that direction. BC is in that direction. Ontario uh, might be announcing very shortly uh, that they'll be going in that direction for specific sets of businesses. Uh, New Brunswick's considering it. Nova Scotia became part of the election-ish, if you will, and, and we have yet to know what the government will do there. Uh, but the reality is businesses want to stay open. For us, the, the main one of our main recommendations right now to provincial governments across the country is they need to have stay open plans. We, we can't have businesses shutting down uh, or being overly restricted anymore. But from a proof of vaccine perspective, uh, some businesses are concerned, owners are very concerned of, of the potential impact it would have on their customers coming in. Uh, and reducing the amount of customers. Uh, and there is a high level of, of concern relating to the, the legal liabilities. You know, 64% of our members are saying we're, 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 we are concerned about the legal risks. So from that perspective, we're recommending to governments at least provide the legal cover to businesses so the businesses don't find themselves being drawn into you know, human rights tribunals or facing legal action for customers that aren't happy. Uh, or from employees uh, because of internal policies to the businesses. So, so th there are a series there of items that governments can do if they choose to, to use those tools. We do have, uh, just like it's reflected in, in the population, uh, uh, diverse views on, on proof of vaccination. And, and from that perspective, uh, it, it is something that... For us, at least, the question of the impacts on the businesses from a legal perspective and from a cost perspective, you, know, you have to have somebody at the front door to, to, to police this. That's potentially additional costs and potentially somebody that you need to hire that you're potentially not going to be able to find with the tightness in the labor market. So when you listen to the, the consideration that business owners have right now at this point, this, this is the the new change in policy we've had potentially. So we've, we've had multiple changes throughout the pandemics. Businesses owners have had to adapt and have adapted, uh, not easily sometimes, uh, because some of the things the government asked were, were quite painful. But um, uh, what will be the next worry uh, over in six months? I, I can't predict that. Nobody can. So when you ask me where, where are we going uh, with living with COVID, uh, it's an unfold, unfolding story. We've written a few chapters after 16 months. I think everybody would like to get to the end of the book, but uh, it's still being written. Yeah, one last question, uh, and, and I just want to nail you down on this. Uh, you know, I, I believe that uh, vaccinations need to be mandatory um, in order to get the the people hesitant to take get the vaccinations up. I mean, you know, we're never going to be able to be freely open if we have a lot of people walking around unvaccinated. Uh, I think, as you understand, and um, um, uh, there are businesses and employers that already who are mandated, including the business that I've invested in, and we we made it mandatory. We made it a condition of employment on the basis of safety for employees and customers. And 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 your members, I think, are have the same responsibility. Um, so to be clear, uh, CFIB is not man is not recommending mandatory vaccinations as a way uh, of opening up. Businesses. No, what we're saying to, to, to be very clear, we have concerns relating to the legal risk. We're asking government that if they implement this, uh, these policies that they have, uh, they provide legal cover and liability cover for businesses. So, no, we have 77% of our business owners, of our members that say this, that they report, that they support, I mean, and encourage their employees to get vaccinated. But, Don, the, the reality is within a workplace from an employee's perspective, look at what the governments have done. In New Brunswick here, uh, a government employee, they're asking employees to be vaccinated. If you're not vaccinated, uh, you basically have to wear a mask and get regular testing. So, the question of the Accommodation from a employment law and 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 uh, human rights perspective, uh, you have to provide an accommodation. So you, if you don't, you open up yourself to a liability, and that's why 
The government in New Brunswick have done, has done it this way. That's why all the universities in Nova Scotia have done it that way. So th there is a consideration of liability there that is very important that needs to be resolved. Uh, and, and that's somewhere where government can help. And when it comes to proof of vaccination uh, for entry in, the, for example, if the approach is taken of non-essential services having to implement this, then uh, providing, making sure that businesses that are responding to a government order are not going to be held liable if somebody decides to sue them uh, or to bring them in from uh, to apply a human rights complaint. So our, our, our main concern is that you know, governments, if they decide to use this, that they consider providing businesses with uh, the liability coverage uh, to fit with their policy. Now, it, 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 it's at the end of the day, it's not okay to put a public policy in place where uh, government basically goes tag your it. No, they should provide the legal cover required. Now, if the legal uh, advice that a business is receiving say is that, yep, you can do this. Well, okay, that's uh, that's not currently our understanding of the situation. So. You no, know, there, there is an element of, of reflection there, and uh, I believe that governments can walk and chew gum at the same time and address this issue if they decide to make it uh, a policy. Uh, it's clear from our data that as an alternative to being locked down or shut down, that businesses, uh, there's a higher support there. But there is a concern from a legal uh, perspective that needs to be uh, addressed and should be addressed. Well, I think we'll leave it there. That was a great conversation. Uh, Louis-Philippe Gauthier is the Senior Director of Legislative Affairs uh, Atlantic for the Canadian Federation of Independent Businesses. Thanks for joining us today on the Insights Podcast. My pleasure. You've been listening to the latest episode of Insights on the Huddle Podcast Network, hosted by Don Mills and David Campbell. Mark Legere and Sharice Letson helped produce this episode. You can subscribe by searching for Huddle Insights on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And we care about what you think, so please give the show a rating and a review. Don and David will be back again with another episode next week.